Well, uh, tonight we are, are wrapping up our series that we've been doing, uh, the series kind of based off of Scott McKnight's book, The King Jesus Gospel. Um, this is our, our last night on that, and uh, we've kind of seeked, sought, sought to, uh, to build a, a definition of, of what the gospel is, or maybe a, a fuller, more robust uh, definition of, of what the gospel is. Um, I wanted to start tonight <clears throat> by actually calling attention to the reading we just heard, and this was, wasn't planned, but uh, the reading we just heard from, from Mark chapter 6, uh, it also can be found in Luke uh, chapter 10, uh, where Jesus sends out uh, the disciples. And uh, it, it's an image I think is really helpful because we've, we've talked about in this series um, how maybe here at Wheatland, we might struggle with words like evangelism uh, or witness. And I think the image uh, in Mark 6 and Luke 10 where, where Jesus sends out uh, the 70, um, in the case of Luke, Luke 10, uh, to be guests in homes, to go out and to be guests, uh, that prompted me this week to just think about uh, how often am I a guest? Uh, where, where in my life am I a guest? Um, and I think that's maybe a first step um, as we think about this idea that we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, first step in, in uh, witness of being uh, and bearing uh, witness. The first step might be to, to go be a guest somewhere. Uh, and to be honest, sadly, in today's world, you might be a, a guest or feel like a guest in your own neighborhood, uh, on your own street, uh, among your own neighbors. Um, I don't know. How many of us know uh, all of our, our neighbors around us? Um, but that might be where we're a guest. And that might be um, a good and interesting and appropriate place for us to start. But tonight I, I want to start by talking about a book that I read uh, in the deep of pandemic. So, uh, you know, when we were all quarantined, some of us, all of us had different experiences. Some of us had a lot of goals uh, for the quarantine, like I'm going to get. Uh, ripped during quarantine. That's what I'm going to do. Um, and that's obviously what I did. Uh, was, uh, <laughs> um, or, or maybe uh, you had a goal to learn a new hobby. Um, and it's, we're, we're all at this interesting spot where we're reflecting like, uh, did we do those things? I don't know. But I read a book at one point um, in the pandemic, and it was a biography on one of our, our U.S. presidents. And I'm actually noticing right now that I'm going to talk about a U.S. president on uh, Fourth of July weekend. I, that wasn't even planned. Um, but can anyone tell me, uh, this, is, this is the trivia for tonight, can anyone uh, tell me who, which president that is on the right? Okay. So no one's goal was to learn the faces of the U.S. president over the corner. No, it's, uh, it's James Garfield, our 20th president. James Garfield. And so I, I read a, a biography on James Garfield. And some of you, when you hear that, you're like, oh, that's what, that's what the quarantine did to you. <laughs> you were reading, you're reading biographies on, <laughs> on presidents uh, like, like Garfield, you know, who didn't have a very long um, stay in the office, by the way. Uh, but I actually really love, I love I've always loved history, uh, something I think um, my dad really gave me. I, I've always loved history, and I especially love it when history is told really well, when it's told in a really good story. And, and so 
it actually makes me beg the question. I, I like biographies that are really well told, like this one uh, was, really, was really good. By the way, the name of it was Destiny of the Republic. It was by uh, a Kansas City native, Candace Millard, by the way. Uh, it made me wonder, why, why don't biographies ever get sequels? Now, that's a joke, and it's a really good one if you think about it. Um, but they never, get, they never get sequels. But uh, what I wanted to talk about from this book, uh, something that happened, and I promise you, if you read this book, you would think, man, James Garfield is the coolest person that ever lived. I guess that's kind of the point of a lot of biographies, but I was convinced. But at the beginning, it opens up with uh, a centennial fair in Philadelphia, so celebrating the uh, first 100 years of this country, and it sketches a few people that were there. So Garfield was there uh, walking around with his family. Uh, we know that, um, uh, I just lost the name, Alexander Graham Bell, uh, who invented the telephone, was there showing the telephone, trying to sell the telephone to people uh, to show what, what he had invented. And then uh, there's this guy who we see on the left uh, who was at this fair. His name was Joseph Lister. And what Joseph Lister was doing, he was a British surgeon, and he was pre presenting um, at one of the nights of this fair, he was presenting to uh, the medical tent. And so he's presenting to all of America's best and brightest uh, surgeons uh, and, and, and medical uh, experts. And he's presenting on this new method and all, this, all these findings that he has found back in his home in Britain uh, of what we now call sterilization uh, or antisepsis. Um, because at this time in the 18, uh, 1880s, um, that was not a thing. Uh, the idea of cleaning your hands, the idea of using clean utensils when you're entering a wound was not a thing at all. And Joseph Lister was this guy saying, guys, we could reduce our death rate dramatically if our surgeons learned this. And he was met with complete scoffing. Uh, these, these experts, America's best and brightest at the time, it was unheard of to, to, to do that because his method of sterilization, uh, it took a long time. And so they said it was absurd um, and that this would never catch on. Uh, and Lister pleaded with him. He's like, guys, I even have the evidence this would, this would help. And he talked about things like germs, and things like germs were not being talked about yet. They were laughed at, um, this, this unidentifiable thing that if, if you could get into a wound and it would cause infection. It, it was unheard of. And Lister, uh, much to his chagrin, could not convince anybody uh, to do it. Five years later, uh, Garfield was president. And huge spoiler alert here. Um, that's also a joke. Uh, Four years into his president, sorry, four months into his presidency, he was shot uh, two times, uh, one in the back and one through the arm. And all of, uh, about a dozen of America's finest surgeons worked on him for a few months, uh, worked on Garfield, and uh, the infection got worse and worse and worse. Why do we think it got worse? Well, you know, all of those surgeons were sticking their, their fingers. That at that time, you know, the first thing you needed to do was find the path of the bullet. Nothing else mattered, and so they were, for all those months, sticking their, their fingers right into, right into the wound. And so, of course, um, we, another spoiler alert, uh, James Garfield, a few months after being shot, he died uh, of pneumonia and infection. And medical historians look back on this and they're like, he would have lived uh, had they believed in this, this idea of uh, sterilizing their instruments or sterilizing even your hands before going into a wound if they believed in 
th this being a cause of infection, Garfield would have would have likely lived. And so it's this interesting uh, piece of medical history, and it's one that's often referred to. Uh, you know, Garfield, we could have had a, a you know a full a full presidency for him. And I think this whole uh, story it gives us an example of uh, this phrase, a plausibility structure. A plausibility structure is uh, the cultural context by which we uh, assume uh, the, the ones that we believe and they help us make sense or plausible something. So um, a plausibility structure is simply our society, what we think is possible. And of course, plausibility structures are always changing because we're always learning that other things are possible, right? At one point, the idea of being on the moon was not plausible. That wasn't in the plausibility structure in, of the culture. And then it happened, and now it is. Now we're talking about if we're going to live on Mars or not. I mean, plausi plausibility structures change. Another um, philosopher, uh, Charles Taylor, has a, a word I like too, uh, uh, social imaginary. Uh, our society has an imagination of what is possible. That's our, that's our plausibility structure. And so, of course, yeah, in the 1880s, it wasn't even in the plausibility structure that germs could, by your dirty hands, get into a wound and cause an infection and end up killing somebody. That wasn't in, wasn't in their plausibility structure, just like the reverse is true for us. The idea of not doing that makes, I mean, a lot of you were wincing as I told that story because it, it feels obvious to us, but we have, of, of course, the gift of hindsight, and uh, it's not in our plausibility structure to, to not do that. And so... Plausibility structures are, are ever changing uh, along with, uh, with history. Um, but every now and then you get someone like Joseph Lister. This guy uh, kind of looks like a cranky guy. Might be why no one listened. I don't know. But Joseph Lister, he, he knew something. He knew, he knew something and tried to, tried to get it out there. And it was, it was not welcomed. But Joseph uh, Lister is an example of someone who was kind of living in two different plausibility structures. Uh, he saw that actually, guys, there's this is other thing possible, and we should pay attention to it. And uh, although it didn't work, that's uh, that's what his role was. He was he was trying to to get people to see something that was outside of their plausibility structure. Uh, and so tonight we're going to think about the church and something we began uh, as we've talked about the gospel is what is a gospel culture? Is our church is Wheatland? Do we embody a gospel culture? And so. Uh, I want us to use this example um, to think about how the church is the beginning of a new plausibility structure. The church has always been and is still today. It is, it is the beginning of a new plausibility structure. It's one that embodies an, an alternative way of life than the world does. An alternative uh, to a life of coercion or greed or addiction or, or scarcity or the list goes on and on. The church is a place that embodies a new plausibility structure. And this happens when the church uh, embodies a gospel culture, the gospel that we've sketched in this series. So tonight we consider Wheatland's involvement in this. Uh, let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, uh, like I said tonight, uh, this, this series, we've gone through kind of sketching what the gospel is. And the, the rough definition we've, we've landed on is this. The gospel is the saving story of Jesus, which is the fulfillment of the story of Israel 
and which culminates in his death, resurrection, and ascension, and makes possible, and I'm adding this part, and makes possible today a life where Jesus is Lord. Those of us in this room, we are witnesses to that story, the saving story of Jesus, the gospel story. We are witnesses to that story. We are, like we talked about last week a little bit, we're interpreters of that story. Uh, we are storytellers. That's the, our story. We're the storytellers. And I've, I've really come to learn, love, learn to love uh, this word witness. Um, as I think about the word witness, I think about two different definitions for it. And I uh, consider them kind of a passive definition. You could be a passive witness or you can be an active witness. So a passive witness is what I would call um, just you, are, you witness something uh, without your choice. Uh, you are a witness if you see a car crash. Um, you didn't choose it. You're, you're, you witnessed it, right? Uh, so it might, that passive form of witness might just be right place, right time, or wrong place, wrong time, however you look at it. But then there's this active uh, definition of witness uh, where we might call it bearing witness, where you actually choose to act the role of witness. You've already been a passive witness. You've seen something happen, but then you take on the role of witness. And for this, I think of uh, you know, law courts, uh, like think of a courtroom, like you don't have to go up there and take the stand. Sometimes actually you do, but you don't have to go up there. Right, Richard? Is that right? right? Sometimes I, um, I should have called you before this. I, I'm going to butcher it. Uh, you don't have to uh, go on and take the role of witness. My favorite uh, in TV shows or movies like law court dramas, my favorite moment is when the, the person who witnessed something is struggling with if they should do it because there's like life or death situations. Um, this is in a lot of shows. Um, one that I watch is Daredevil on Netflix. It's a superhero show, but he's a lawyer. And there's all, all, so many times it's like the people are trying to decide if they are going to take the role of witness because it might be life or death. And so we have these two definition, uh, definitions of witness. And tonight, I, I mean, everyone in this room, we're probably at least the passive definition of witness right? We've witnessed something. We've witnessed God's work in the world, I hope. Uh, we've witnessed God's work in our lives. Uh, but tonight I want us to think about if as a group and individually are we the active definition of witness? Do we actually take on the, the vocation of witness as we have witnessed the, the power of the gospel story? Uh, McKnight in his book at one point, and I've mentioned this in the series, but at one point, he talks about the, the language that Paul employs to talk about gospeling. He, he, he turns the gospel into a verb. Like, the gospel that I gospeled is, is the way some of the wording, like, it, it means. It, it's embodied thing. A lot of us have probably seen this quote uh, from St. Francis. Uh, Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Um, a lot of us probably heard this. Um, there's two problems with this this quote. Uh, the first is that uh, St. Francis didn't say it. Um, it's just become known that, but it's pretty clear that he didn't say this. And two, I don't know how helpful it is for us. And let me be specific. I don't know how helpful it is for us, for Wheatland. There are probably people, uh, there are probably Christians for whom uh, getting the gospel words out, getting the story to people is effortless. They do that effortlessly, but they might not back it up with a life of, 
of God's love. And so for those people, maybe they need to hear this phrase, you know, yeah, preach the gospel in your actions. That, that's what this, this line means. Preach it in your, in your actions. But I, I really don't think uh, that that's any of us here at Wheatland. I would, I would venture to guess that we might be the opposite. Um, I bet that we love pretty well um, in our deed, but might not always match it up by loving uh, or by witnessing, uh, rather, by our word. And, and so I want us to think about uh, a gospel culture witnesses by both word and deed, both. We become storytellers in both word and deed. If the gospel is the saving story of Jesus, then witnesses us, we have to be storytellers. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas has this quote uh, that we'll throw up there. This is in his book, uh, Community of Character. He says, the task of the church is to be the kind of people that tells and tells rightly the story of Jesus. A truthful telling of the story cannot be guaranteed by historical investigation, but by being the kind of people who can bear the burden of that story with joy. We, no less than the first Christians, are the continuation of the truth made possible by God's rule. There's so much, so much in that quote to, uh, that we could unpack. Um, I love the, the language that we bear the burden of this story with joy. Uh, it acknowledges two almost competing ideas. We do it with joy, but it is a burden at times. Uh, we bear the burden of telling this story and telling it rightly. So going from there where he, he mentions that we no less than the first Christians are the continuation of this gospel culture. Uh, let's consider the first Christians just a little bit uh, tonight um, from the book of Acts. The book of Acts, uh, when we read the book of Acts, we find a newly formed people who have already passively witnessed this story and they are now becoming active witnesses. They're becoming storytellers. In Acts, this newly formed community does this in both word and deed. This is something, if you go and read the first few chapters of Acts, uh, I find it interesting. Um, the chapters kind of work as a back and forth of one, one chapter. They're doing this by their words. You find a series of sermons throughout all of Acts. They're doing it with their words. And it's remarkable through this whole series, I, I keep going back to those sermons because it's remarkable that they're really just telling the story of Jesus. And usually landing on a point of claiming his, his rule as Lord, as King. And then it interspliced between those sermons throughout the book of Acts. You see the people of the first church doing it in, in deed as well, in their actions. We see them uh, healing people. We see them loving others. We see them providing for one another, uh, which becomes a witness to those outside. Um, they're becoming a community of witness by their deeds. But they're clearly doing it by their words as well. The first sermon in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 2. And if you have a Bible, we're just going to look at um, a couple different parts of Acts really quickly. Uh, but the first sermon is, is from Peter. And it's, not, it's prompted by uh, the Pentecost, right? And uh, he has to kind of give an answer because they ask all these people who have just received the Spirit, why are you drunk so early in the morning? And, uh, and Peter has to answer that. And I'm grateful I've never had to go into a sermon based off that question before. Uh, but 
Peter, Peter does. And if you read that first sermon, he's just narrating the story of Jesus. And, and he ends on a point of the fact that Jesus is Lord over this community and over the world. And when he's done, it says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? I think uh, I like this line, um, cut to the heart, uh, the story, simply narrating the story of Jesus. It cut to the hearts of those listening. Uh, one of Hauerwas's lines uh, that he says in many places, and I'm going to completely paraphrase it, um, is that the church exists to show the world that it's not the church. Uh, that it is uh, to show the world a manner of life that it could not possibly attain. And it sounds like a harsh line. You know, our job as a church is to show the world, you're not us. You're not the church. It sounds kind of weird. But he's meaning at, at times the church is going to live in such a way that it cuts to people's hearts, that it makes them start asking questions. Uh, and, I, and I've seen this. Um, this, is, this is a common response to, to witness uh, of this story. So being cut to the heart is an effect of storytelling at times. Have you ever heard a story that cut you to the heart? Even if it's not the gospel story, have you ever heard a story that made you start asking questions about your own life? I have often. This Garfield biography, against all odds, made me ask me some questions. Um, stories have that effect that shouldn't surprise us. So the apostles were storytellers in a time where the world needed a new story, a new narrative. And this is what I want to stress tonight, is that today, uh, in 2021, we need a new narrative. We need a new story. Of course, in a sense, the gospel uh, isn't a new narrative. In a sense, it's an ancient one. Except that's the good news, is that the, the gospel story is ever new. Uh, it is ever new. Our culture needs a new narrative so badly. It needs a different plausibility structure. This is something uh, for me that uh, working with, with kids, middle and high schoolers, has really helped me with is when speaking uh, with middle and high schoolers, my eyes are often open to all the narratives that are being offered them at that age. Uh, it happens to us as adults, but there's something about that age where you see, you, you see it more clearly and you see the decisions being made what story am I going to, to follow? And, and being the outside looking in, it's always interesting to see, wow, there's a lot of stories being, being offered. Some of them are, are really strong, uh, strongly being offered. And uh, this, is, this is true for all of us. We're storied people. This is something that Dallas Willard and James Bryan Smith, uh, our local, uh, and um, uh, Jamie Smith, uh, different people, th this is something they help us understand, that we're storied people, that we live our lives through narrative, um, whether we know it or not. It's, it's how our beliefs work. And I think this is why Christian rhythms like weekly worship, weekly gatherings for worship, weekly prayer, uh, the reading and hearing of Scripture, in my opinion, these, these aren't just nice and optional things if you want to be a Christian. If you want to be a Christ follower, uh, this story has to be around us a lot because all throughout the week we're being told so many stories. So many. 
So I want to um, end tonight by thinking about one example, just one rival story to the gospel story that we are all familiar with. And I'm picking this one uh, for two reasons. One, uh, it's one that shows up multiple times in the book of Acts early on. So it was clearly a, a, a revolutionary thing, one that was uh, noticed by the public outside of the church. And two, because it happens to be uh, something that I'm struggling with, and I think uh, God's inviting me to learn. So sorry, that's what you get sometimes uh, from whoever's preaching. Uh, but what I want to think about, this rival story that we're going to be familiar with, uh, I'm going to call it the story of scarcity. And it goes by other names. Uh, we might call it the story of uh, consumerism or the story of excess or the story of earning. Or uh, we can use scriptural terms and call it the story of mammon. Mammon was this uh, embodiment uh, of greed, wealth, of, of owning more, possession. Uh, that's the word Jesus employs, uh, mammon, the spirit of mammon. This is a story we have had and we've heard our entire lives. And this is what that story tells us in a nutshell. It tells us a lot, but it, it tells us that we don't have enough. Or maybe more sneaky, it says we might not have enough. It tells us uh, that we need more, whether it be for enjoyment or whether it be for, you know, a nice little safety net. We need more. And it tells us, also that what we do have we have earned we have earned what we have all of it and i know that this story uh it seems necessary on some level i mean in a in a sense it helps us navigate our our economy i mean um but make no mistake this story rivals the story of jesus uh jesus says, puts it real simply, you, you, you cannot serve both God and mammon. In, in Acts, uh, this comes up multiple times, it's what's often quoted from is Acts chapter 2. Uh, Acts 2, where we get this really quick sketch of how these, these, this first church was living, and it says that there was no need met unmet, right? Uh, and that they were providing for one another. But for my money, Acts chapter 4 is even more helpful. Uh, so if you're in your Bibles, Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says this. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This story that we see in their actions and their deeds, it's telling a story. And it's painting a picture of the kingdom of heaven, a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus gave. Uh, Wendell Berry, in his writing, he calls this, uh, uh, he calls the kingdom of heaven at times the great economy or God's economy. And even Barry, actually, he acknowledges that, and he argues that we can't live without uh, our economy here, our local, national, international economy, and we, and we inhabit that economy, and he's not arguing against that one bit. But he's saying our first and our primary economy and what 
the economy we see lived out in the church is, is God's, and it looks different than mammon, always. So I think, I think that if local churches, and I think local churches do this, uh, display even an inkling of this, it's, it's noticed, both from those within and those without. It will be a witness. I think we've all probably seen this uh, uh, here at Wheatland. We just shared several. I shared one <laughs> where I was literally provided for um, in, in an economy that was not the same as the world's. This, as we tell this story uh, in our community, it tells a story that we have enough. And in fact, we have more than enough. We have abundance. And it tells a story that says that there's no earning in God's kingdom, that things are given to us. There's not even possession. There are a few things, I think, more beautiful than when we catch glimpses of this, uh, than, this, this uh, than God's economy, God's story being played out. When we catch a glimpse uh, of this witness, we see a, a new narrative completely. And while at times it, it cuts to the heart, it also invites us and shows us a whole new way of life. Life under King Jesus. As I said, there's many, there's many examples and glimpses of this uh, right here at Wheatland. Um, sometimes they're, they're very behind the scenes. Sometimes I wish they weren't as behind the scenes just so we could all be witnessed to by these amazing things. Another helpful thing for me that is worth saying is I'm seeing them everywhere at Hilltop, uh, which for me is a good reminder that you don't have to have any amount of wealth to, to live this uh, the, the life of giving, to tell this story. Um, it's, it's happening all throughout the church. It's a witness to a whole new way of life. I'll end by just sharing one example, and I've told it before, um, probably last year, but uh, and this was um, at, at seminary when I was in Chicago. Uh, the guy I actually prayed for, uh, his name's Cody. Him and another guy were there, and they are in this church in Knoxville, Tennessee. And it's a really great church, and they're, they're pretty Anabaptist, so they even have almost a, a shared purse, a common purse. Um, th- they do this on a very pretty formal way. Uh, take care of each other's needs. And uh, there was this other guy uh, who is in Fort Smith, Arkansas, a pastor, and he was sharing with all of us that he, he really felt called by God to start sharing certain things in his sermons that he knew his people didn't want to hear. But it was, it was hard and heavy on his heart that he needed to share these things. He felt like they were from God. But he just couldn't do it because he knew his elder board. He knew he'd get fired. That was his fear. And he has a family to think about. I mean, they're reasonable questions to ask. He's worried about his family. He needs to provide for them. He's stuck in this position. These two guys from this church, uh, they, they gave him encouragement in word. They told God's story to him in word. They asked some hard questions to him. One thing I remember them asking was, okay, what's right in the sermons for you? Is it the spirit of God or the spirit of mammon? Like, something's right in the sermons. Uh, which is a cut, cutting to the heart question, kind of question to ask. But then they backed it up with deed. Uh, one of them looked them right in the eye. And I get chills now thinking about it. I got chills at the time because I knew how serious he meant this. He said, if you start preaching these things that are on your heart and you feel like God's asking you to say them, if you lose your job, our church in Knoxville, Tennessee, hundreds of miles away, we will make sure you do not go without. 
we will make sure you are covered and your family is covered. These are churches that don't know a thing about each other other than these, these, these pastors meeting for the, for the second time ever. And I knew he meant it. That is, that is a new story, a new narrative. That's, I, I got to witness. I was witnessing uh, their witnessing uh, of this story. So I pray that for us, we become uh, and are con- continue to be made into a church uh, that make this new story intelligible to those around us, whether it be our family, our neighbors, uh, the people we run across in, in any everyday, ordinary life, uh, that this community could be a community of witness. I'll end uh, with a prayer, also from Hauerwas. Can you tell who I pulled from a lot for this sermon? Uh, this is a, a prayer, I think, appropriate to end our time and lead into communion. Spirit of truth, direct our attention to the life of Jesus so that we might see what you would have us be. Make us, like him, teachers of your good law. Make us, like him, performers of miraculous cures. Make us, like him, proclaimers of your kingdom. Make us, like him, loving of the poor, the outcast, children. Make us, like him, silent, when the world tempts us to respond in the world's terms. Make us like him ready to suffer. We know we cannot be like Jesus except as Jesus was unlike us, being your son. Make us cherish that unlikeness that we may grow into the likeness made possible by Jesus' resurrection. Amen.